Welcome to the Highland Southern Baptist Podcast. Each week, Keith Perrin will deliver a Holy Spirit-inspired message. If you have a Bible, you can read along with us. Our mission is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ from Hillsboro, Missouri to the rest of the world. Now, here's Pastor Keith. I want to tell you, uh, me really feeling like the Lord led me to this message today uh, comes with a little bit of anxiety. And um, by no means am I going to tell God no when he says to preach something. Uh, so we're going to look at this passage of scripture. Uh, but I can tell you that in, in Christian circles, and uh, especially in, uh, in um, I should say, traditionally Southern Baptist circles, this can be a very controversial passage of scripture for a preacher to look into. Um, it is the gospel according to Mark, chapter 13. The Gospel according to Mark, chapter 13. Um, traditionally, traditionally, Southern Baptists have, um, they have some, some ideas, and I don't, I'm not going to pretend to know for sure what people's motivations are, um, but there is an idea of how the, the second coming of Christ is supposed to unfold. And I can tell you that, uh, you know, when I first came to Highland, um, I told Highland that uh, I am Southern Baptist. I believe that Southern Baptists have, um, when it comes to theology, I believe that through all of my studies, it just continues to affirm that Southern Baptists are closest in what they say, the what they trans- translate the Bible out of, uh, what comes out of the translation, I should say. Um, but I will say that uh, the traditional Southern Baptist churches um, have always held a pre-tribulation point of view. And I can tell you, not based on anything historical, not based on anything that I was ever told, not based on things that were passed down to me, but based on my studies in the Scripture, which I can tell you that I have done thoroughly on many, many, many occasions, um, I don't hold to the traditional Southern Baptist point of view. Um. I believe that Christians will live through three and a half years of the tribulation. Now, before we get into this, I want you to know some of my reasoning behind this. First and foremost, there are a lot of scripture that speaks to the three and a half year period that Christians will live through. Talks about the dragon trampling the temple of God for a time, times, and a half a time. Time, times, and a half a time. It talks about the church being under persecution for 42 months. 42 months is how long? And then hillbilly logic kicks in. Tribulation literally means the persecution of the church. If the church isn't here, how can it be persecuted? So there is a lot of scriptural evidence. There's, there's evidence in this particular passage of scripture. But I also want you guys to, to not, I brought all this up ahead of time because I don't want anybody to get thrown off in a different direction. This message isn't even really about that. I don't want it to go there. Because I realize that many people are extremely passionate about the pre-tribulation um, point of view when it comes to the return of Christ. And I get it. I mean, who honestly wants to go through that? None of us do. 
Um, I've taught through the book of Revelation five times since I've been at Highland in 20 years. And in those five times, what's the conclusion, Joyce? Be ready. Be ready. So my point is this. If there's no evidence whatsoever of a, mid, of a mid-tribulation um, rapture of the church, then everybody gets to say, you we get to get out of here before the tribulation even starts. If we don't look at the scriptures that actually encourage the possibility of a mid-trib, what happens to the person who just knows they ain't going to go through it, but then ends up having to? Are they going to be ready? I've had people say, the Lord wouldn't make me go through that. To which I um, remind people how many of the apostles died of a ripe old age from natural causes. None of them. All of them were martyred, except for one who I think had it worse than all of the others because he was boiled in oil and lived. You can imagine being boiled in oil today in that recovery with the science and technology they had back then, which was uh, to solve people's health problems, they would bleed you. How hard would a recovery from being boiled in oil been uh, 2,000 years ago? Uh, That's nightmarish to even even think about. Um, But John was boiled in oil and survived lived out the remainder of his years on the Isle of Patmos in prison for the gospel that he proclaimed. But I can tell you, folks, this is a fact. And, And please don't disregard any part of this message because I'm telling you this is a fact. We are seeing, as I've mentioned a couple of weeks past, direct evidence of the church becoming more and more under persecution. It's happening. Every sermon that's ever been preached about conviction of the Holy Spirit, um, sanctification of the individual, holding fast to the truth, moving forward in growth, <clears throat> not <clears throat> excuse me, not um, allowing ourselves to become um, complacent or not accepting mediocrity when it comes to Christianity, what God's looking for. All of these things, folks, not only has to do with leading lost people to Christ, but it also has to do with us being able to make it. The preparation for battle. And honestly, in our lifetime, <clears throat> even though we've fought some battles, how many, of, how many of us can honestly say that we've been through spiritual wars? We live in a great country. That country has afforded us a lot of freedoms that we've enjoyed for a really long time. We've not had the scenario come up where individuals like in Iraq and in Korea, North Korea, where individuals are are literally beheaded and killed for their faith because they believe in Christ. We see a hatred beginning to arise even within our nation a hatred of individuals who have the, the audacity to talk about sin. People, churches, sermons, statements being deleted off of social media because people don't agree with it. 
you're not allowed to agree with, to disagree with people in culture anymore. This culture has now condemned anybody who does not follow the model that society is creating and that it pushes forth. And anybody who does not see this coming has to have their eyes closed because the pressure is building, the pressure is mounting. I'm not going to say that that Jesus' return is going to be in my lifetime. I don't know that. But I know that his return is imminent. And I know that the Bible continues to tell us, and we're going to continue to see in this particular passage of Scripture, that things are going to continue to get worse before Christ does return. In this particular passage of Scripture, and I want to point this out, I don't want to, give, I don't want to stand up here, I will be here forever if I decide to give everybody the entire his, history of eschatology, the study of the book of Revelation. But I will tell you this, there are several people who look at the book of Revelation several ways. We're going to see some evidence that I'll point out to you that Jesus Christ is not only referring to things that happen in his lifetime, but he's also referring to things that will happen in the end time. So basically the way that the Bible uh, points particular things out, individuals talk about um, um, the world basically taking over. The Bible tells us this several times, and it's happened several times, and it's happened, I believe, for the purpose of us having examples of how this going is going to happen. First time that this happened, which I could probably realistically give you four um, examples, uh, but I will give you two examples that have happened, as well as the one that we know that the Bible is also referring to, which is the future, um, otherwise known as prophecy. Don't get into this whole prophecy thing the way a lot of people do. I mean, there are individuals who... They, there were preachers out there who were saying, oh, we're going to have three blood moons in one year. That's the end. The Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't say anything about the blood moons um, and the cycle of them actually meaning the world's going to end at a particular day. In a particular. It doesn't tell us that. And there are people who take leaps. We have no right to take a leap. Taking a leap actually creates anxiety in people's lives where they don't need it and things that we don't have obvious answers to. If God wants us to know, guess what? He'll tell us. If, if he doesn't want us to know, he's not going to tell us. And it's just a waste of time for us as individuals to try to make guesses about things that he don't talk about. There's plenty that he does talk about. First time, Israel was overrun by Babylon. can certainly be used as the picture that it's that we're going to read a little bit about today about the uh the things that transpired trans, that that led up to um jerusalem being taken over by babylon during the time of, of daniel the second time and he gives he alludes jesus alludes to this in this in these uh particular apostles lifetimes and it's something that actually happened rome 70 a.d marched into Jerusalem, killed a million Jews, and destroyed the temple. But Jesus isn't just talking about what happens then. He's also talking about what happens in our future. These are pictures of things that he tells repeatedly that leads us to a conclusion of the things that we are going to experience upon the time of Jesus Christ's return. So in chapter 13, starting with verse 1, it says, And as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? 
not one stone shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now, this particular um, disciple, we don't know who this disciple was. It doesn't say who it was that actually said this, but it does say one of the disciples had made a comment about basically how beautiful the temple was and was probably looking for Jesus Christ to make the response, yes, it really is, it's beautiful, it's gorgeous, to kind of just affirm what it was that this apostle had talked about. Imagine the shock. Now, we know that there was some shock involved with this because it's this conversation that actually provokes the conversation that follows. So when Jesus had actually said, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now this isn't just talking about the destruction of a temple. This isn't talking about the, um, this isn't talking about the tearing down of a temple. This is talking about an absolute destruction of the temple. Because he says specifically, Not one stone shall be left upon another. Not one stone shall be left upon another. So the temple will be utterly annihilated, completely destroyed. Imagine the shock that this would have brought to the disciples that actually asked the question. Verse 3 says, As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Now this provoked what Jesus had responded to the first disciple. It provoked a thought with four of the major apostles who were so curious about what it was that Jesus said that they sat down to him and said, Okay, wait a minute. You need to tell us when this is going to happen and what this really means. He says in verse 5, So Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you find it interesting that the first thing that Jesus said in response was, see to it that no one misleads you. This is crucial, folks. See to it that no one misleads you. Now, he leads into an expansion of that first question, but I want to tell you something, folks. Do not, under any circumstances, buy anything that anybody tells you that is not absolutely affirmed by God. It doesn't matter if it makes us feel better. It doesn't matter if it makes us feel worse. It doesn't matter if it makes us feel exactly like we feel right now. Do not be, under any circumstances, misled. One of the reasons it's, it's so vital, I mean, this isn't a power this, this isn't a power struggle, folks. I really hope that there are no preachers that are out there in the world trying to encourage people to read the Bible because it gives them some kind of sixth sense of authority. It's important for us to know the Bible because it's important for us to know, one, how to recognize when things that are happening around us are happening, and two, how to respond to those things that are happening around us. How many people in here question that Jesus is coming back? Do you question it? Or do you believe that it's a fact? you think that one day he's just going to pop up and there are going to be no circumstances surrounding us that are going to try to mislead us, that are going to try to trick us? How many of you in your lifetime have ever been tricked by the devil? 
and even very minor things in life he, tr- he, he tricks us and trips us up. This, this is his opportunity to beat God. He didn't get him the first time. He tried to get him, and his consequences were he got kicked out of heaven with a third of the angels who was following him. Do you think the fight's over for him? No. He's just not headed and proud enough to think that he can still do it. And he will use every one of our human attributes to bring it about. You know what the devil uses more? This is my opinion. You know what the devil uses more than anything else to trip up people? Themselves. How much have we allowed, especially in in the time of our lives where we were apart from Christ, how much of our lives was controlled by what we wanted? How much of our thoughts were controlled by what we wanted? How did that provoke our actions in order, to, in order to accommodate or accomplish what it was that we wanted? We're easily misled people. There's only one thing that has the ability to keep our feet firmly on the ground, and that's the truth. And we receive the, tr- the truth through Christ. Christ helps us keep our feet on the ground. So everything the Bible teaches us gives us the ability to be able to recognize when an individual may pop up and say, I'm Jesus. I've come back together in my church. Verse 6 says, Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And what what does the next part say? And will mislead many. We're not talking about something that's far-fetched, that's hard to believe. We're talking about something that will mislead many. He's going to be good enough that there will be many people who will fall for it. Jesus' desire is for us to be individuals who do not fall for it. Verse 7 says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. Now you say, wow, right now we're experiencing wars and rumors of wars, right? We're not talking about what we're experiencing right now. We're talking about an extreme situation. We're talking about it being multiple times worse than what we experience in our regular lives. The world is basically going to lose its mind. Its cheese is going to slide off its cracker, and there are going to be fights, and where there's not fights, there are going to be threats of fights. Pack it all up. Nope. Because in Jesus' own words, what did he say? This is not the end. Now I want to ask you something. When nations fight against nations, and when there are wars and rumors of wars, what does that do to the economy? You want to you see something scary? Check and see how much of our food is shipped in from foreign countries. How much of the things that we use in everyday life are being shipped in from foreign countries? We're worried about life being hard when they start beheading people. What happens when food shortages become a serious problem because the relationships that we have built with other countries and trade have now got us locked into a situation where the U.S. does not grow enough food to feed its people. 
Will people kill for food? You better believe they will. But this is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. It's interesting that he uses the phrase, merely the beginning of birth pangs. Any woman in here or man in here who has actually witnessed this knows how these birth pangs happen. Even throughout the pregnancy, occasionally there will be a discomfort that will actually cause a little bit of fright in the mother. Oh my, that hurt. Was that right? But then when you get closer to the point that, that labor pains begin, they may start and be 20 minutes apart from each other. He says this is just the beginning of birth pains. And the conclusion to that is, when it starts at 20 minutes, does the time ever get longer? It always gets shorter. Now you've heard me stand up here and say, I've read the book. It tells me that things are going to get worse before they get a whole lot better. There it is. The birth pangs are going to continue to grow closer and closer together. And not only are they going to grow closer and closer together, but what comes along with them growing closer and closer together? They become more and more painful. Verse 9 says, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and will flog, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. They'd be flogged. This would have been something that certainly would have happened to the Jews at that particular time. Those individuals who um, were Jews genealogically, a Jew could whip another Jew 39 times. Couldn't whip them any more than that. They were stripped down to their waist, were whipped 13 times on their chest and 26 times on their back. Then they were put before the leaders. And then he says this, and the gospel must first be preached to all of the nations. Well, wait a minute. That verse just before that, that made it sound like he was talking about the apostles in their time. When Rome comes in 70 AD, they kill a whole bunch of Jews. They, um, they then take the uh, apostles and the disciples and they whip them and they put them in front of the leaders. But verse 10, do you think at that time the gospel had been preached to all the nations? Nowhere near it. Why? How do I know that? Because the gospel is not even active yet. Jesus is the one that's saying these things. At the time that Jesus said these things, he was still alive. Salvation through Christ wasn't even a possibility. The gospel had not even been born, nor would it be born until after he had suffered the crucifixion, been buried, and then rose again. One thing that, and this was every bit of 10 years ago, 
the Southern Baptist Convention had put out a report that every nation in the world would have had the gospel 10 years from that point, which is around this time. I don't know for sure if that passage of Scripture is talking about the gospel is delivered by people, if it's talking about the supernatural gospel where the angels are the ones that actually proclaim the gospel, nobody knows for sure which of those two that it's referring to. But the fact of the matter is, the gospel must first be preached to all of the nations. Now, I want, I, want you to, I want you to look beyond the surface there and see what that actually means. How many people does Jesus Christ desire are saved? What's his desire when it comes to salvation of the lost? How many does he want us to see saved? All of them. It is his will that none would perish, but that all would come to salvation through Christ Jesus. That's his desire. So this is a picture of the compassion that he has in saying, none of these things are going to happen. These things are not, the end hasn't come. I'm not coming back to here or to gather at my church until after everyone has had the opportunity. you think there's any possibility that that time's arrived? We've had a lot of missionaries in the field for a long time. And they've been going into areas that no man has ever traveled before. So I can tell you that whether we've met that criteria or not, we are quickly approaching meeting that criteria. 11, it says, when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. I want to ask you a serious question. Just based on what I've said so far, based on this passage of Scripture, how many of you guys feel a little bit of discomfort about what's going on at this particular time in the Bible? Let's be honest. If these things are true, and I believe the Bible is, there's cause for a human being to have a little concern. Amen? So if you if you are arrested and taken before and taken before leadership, what is going to be your temptation? Well, I mean, every one of us have something that's wired into our very nature, our our very being, and it is survivability. And how many of you guys have ever had trouble speaking in public? Ever had trouble speaking publicly? You kind of have this this anxiety about and stutter over your words, and you know, just it's very difficult because your mind's everywhere. Here, Jesus is saying, "Don't worry about it. You relax. Trust me, and I'll speak through you." Because, folks, here's the deal, and this is where this is where this is all going to get lost. If we as individuals do not have total trust in Jesus Christ, what's total trust? Total trust means no matter what happens to you, do you trust him? Again, you've got, we've got the historical record of every one of the apostles. I mean, imagine the faith that it required. As much as we like to pick on Peter, imagine the faith that was required when they told Peter... We're going to crucify you, 
And instead of Peter saying, oh, no, please don't do that. Or, you know what, I'll renounce Jesus. I'll, whatever I have to do in order to survive. Peter didn't say that. You know what he said? He said, oh, I got one request. When you crucify me, crucify me upside down because I'm not worthy to hang the way that my Lord did. Could you imagine the faith that it took at that particular time to be able to say, hold on, one request. When you crucify me, do it upside down because I'm not worthy to hang like Jesus did. I'm hard on Peter. I think that Peter is probably the most accurate depiction of most human beings uh, at any particular point in their life when they're a believer in Jesus. We are, to some extent, self-preservationists. We are individuals who um, speak before we think. We are individuals who jump the gun way too many times. Boy, this is one place I hope that I'm like Peter. Verse 12 says, Brother will deliver brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all on account of my name. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. Now I want you to imagine, for all of us who have good relationships with our families, could you imagine a brother delivering a brother up to death? Or a child delivering up a parent to death? Can you imagine how much mind control has to be going on when it comes to the circumstances in life? This is beginning to happen, folks. I said it earlier, I'll say it again. You are not allowed to disagree with people anymore. Did you know that there are politicians right now who are putting um, things in place? They've even publicly announced that they're recording names of individuals who were Trump supporters. They're recording names of individuals who are conservative under any circumstances. Some are saying that we even need to be gathered up and retrained. They're saying these things. This is beginning to unfold, folks. Again, I can't say... That'll happen in a year, 10 years, 50 years, or 100 years. But I can tell you this, we're moving in that direction, and it's obvious that we're moving in that direction. Look at 13. You will be hated by all on account of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. Salvation doesn't come through enduring. Enduring comes through salvation. In other words, our endurance to be able to find us through these circumstances that are going to be difficult circumstances that we will have to deal with in our lifetime because we will have to deal with some of them in our our lifetime. Everything that we learn about the Bible, every bit that we learn that encourages us to grow in our faith, those are the things that are the result of salvation that will give us the ability to endure, to find our way through it, to find our way through it the way that we should find our way through it. 
14, but when you see the, the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. On some level, we see this happening. We don't see it happen on a, on a, on a broad scale, but in some ways, we already see this happening. But this is talking specifically about the temple in Jerusalem that will at some point in our future be rebuilt. Watch for it. When it happens, you know that the time's creeping closer. And in that temple, an idol will be raised up. And it will not be raised up for a day or two days or three days or a week. It will be raised up and will be there for a duration of time. I remember the first time that I started studying this stuff. My my initial reaction was, you know what? I, I wish I just didn't know it. Right? I mean, just let me be a Christian and enjoy all the blessings of being a Christian because this stuff sounds like it's no fun. Then I asked myself one day, why would Jesus tell us this stuff? a two-word answer so that we may be ready I want to ask you a serious question folks we're going to continue this message because I didn't get near as far as, as as I need to get but I want to ask you this question if it all unfolded today would you be ready Are you ready for a worldwide economic collapse? You're ready to face the consequences of being someone who's a believer in Jesus Christ? Who not only always has been, but will continue to be the most hated figure in all of history? As I preach every Sunday, my hope and my prayer is that through every act of God in the conviction of the heart and soul of the person, a transformation is being made that is preparing people not only for the circumstances they will face in the world today, but also for the circumstances that we may face in the future. Two weeks ago, remember I recorded my sermon on my phone. I uploaded it to Facebook, and I looked for it all day long. I'm terrible about checking my emails. Monday, <clears throat> I thought, well, it just must, I must not have uploaded. I got an email from Facebook. said that my video was not posted because it violated their community standards. First time ever for me. I expected fully at that point the one next to the one last week to be pulled down. It goes through a different source. doesn't go through my phone. 
They didn't pull it down. But just the fact that it happened. Do you know me to be someone to stand up here and spew hatred? Is that what I do? I sure hope that nobody would draw the conclusion that I stand up here and spew hatred. But I'm being silenced. The message that I have to speak is being silenced. What emotions do you think that I went through when I got that notification? Because there were several. Anger. Fear. Frustration. But what's the temptation? Well, if I want to continue to have my videos available online, I need to be careful about what I preach. It's not happening. Because the truth is the truth. The truth is, everyone starts off lost, and Jesus is the source of that salvation. That sin is sin, whether it's culturally popular or not. And the consequences of that sin is eternal damnation. And as the world continues to grow to hate that message, they will continue to grow to hate the ones who deliver it. And we're headed to a place that nobody wants to go. And my biggest concern is we may be in a situation eventually where we can't help it, we're going there. And as unprepared as we may be, just how prepared are we? Because I'll close with this. What did he say in verse 14? When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should be, should not be, let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Hang out. See what happens? Is that what it said? Next week I'll continue this message on. But I'll give you a little bit of a precursor to the next part. When it happens, it's going to happen fast. And it's going to happen so fast that God says, don't mess around. Get out. How many of y'all love the message this morning? a scary thing to think about but I'll tell you something folks we need to love this stuff because that's the only way we'll make it God loves us enough that he gave us the exact idea of what's going to be happening things for us to watch for I can tell you right now when the temple in Jerusalem is rebuilt it's going to make me sit up straight That's, a, that's an absolute marker. I'm going to sit up straight. I want nothing more than for us to be ready for this. 
and the churches that are out there refusing to speak the truth because people are refusing to hear it, the churches that are out there just making people feel good rather than preaching the, the pure message of the Bible in hopes that conviction may come upon each and every one of us and hopes that sanctification may continue, the knowledge that we gain, the things that are going to continue, folks, we have to be ready. We have to. Because I can promise you, regardless of what anybody has told you, even if you slide out of the church today saying, I'm still pre-trib, do you think that means that you won't face any trouble? Trouble's coming. It's just a matter of when. Do you trust Jesus? And if you do, how much? He gave his life for me. And what did he expect in return? For me to give my life for him. And as long as I'm alive, that translates in proclaiming the gospel, speaking the truth, living a life that points the lost to him. But one day, him being the one that owns my life could mean that I lose it. haven't made it there yet, but in this passage of Scripture. What does the Bible say about those who lose their life? They find it. If you're here today, or you hear my voice, and you've not given your life to Jesus Christ, it's a very simple thing to do. I don't want you to do it because I asked you to. I only want you to do it if the Holy Spirit impresses this upon you and you will know if he does if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ it's as simple as believing that he the second person of the trinity God himself took on human form was born into this world lived the perfect life died on the cross for our sins traded our sinfulness for his perfection imputed was placed in a grave and rose three days later it's just as simple. You will be saved. A promise that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He will not, he will not reject anyone. If you were the near shot of my voice and you're a believer, I want you to know that it's important for us to be people who live life at its fullest. So my hope and prayer is that you don't hear this message today and walk away afraid. Don't be afraid. We serve the creator of the universe. Coincidentally, the very worst thing that this world can do to me is the best thing that this world can do to me. Because the end of this life is the beginning of eternal life. We need to live it faithfully, obediently, joyfully. Don't turn away from the truth. Seek it. Desire it. Accept it. And every day we'll be one step closer to being ready, which ultimately is the goal. 
Thank you for joining us today. If you have questions about becoming a Christian, prayer requests, or just want to say hello, you can reach us at facebook.com forward slash Highland Southern BC. We hope that this message was encouraging to all of our listeners. Have a blessed week.